Hello, I'm Ashley Mueller, and welcome to this week's episode of the Geneva Center for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues advancing peace, security, and international cooperation. In recent months, the Latin American region has experienced an upsurge in protests, and as the region struggles to cope with a wave of COVID-19, we discuss the region's challenges with Dr. Christopher Sabatini, Senior Research Fellow for Latin America, U.S. and the Americas program at Chatham House. And as global leaders are in the spotlight as they try to cope with the global consequences of the pandemic, we spoke to Dr. Patrick Sweet, co-director of the Geneva Leadership Alliance about an opportunity for leaders to develop their skills. Thank you, Dr. Sabatini, for joining us with the GCSP today. Exactly. Pleasure to have you. Uh, so, Dr. Christopher Sabati is a Senior Research Fellow for Latin America, U.S. and Americas Program at Chatham House, uh, formerly a lecturer in discipline in the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Chris is also on the advisory board of Harvard University's last law and of the Inter-American Foundation. His areas of expertise include democracy, human rights, foreign policy in the region, social inclusion, resource extraction, and community rights, Venezuela and Cuba. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, My first question to you is, what is the current security relationship between the U.S. and Latin America? The U.S.'s relations with Latin America, not just in security, but primarily in security, have been driven by these domestic issues. And currently it is drugs, primarily, uh, and narcotics corruption, and crime, and uh, that has meant oftentimes providing assistance uh, to the armed forces and to the national police in combating issues of drug trafficking, uh, illicit markets, human trafficking, uh, and the like, and then increasingly also, perhaps unfortunately, given the the tone of this uh, discussion in terms of also uh, immigration. And then there's also the issue of Venezuela, which has become an increasing security concern for the United States. That does not involve, obviously, military assistance to Venezuela or to any of its neighboring countries. Um, that really involves, is recently involved, uh, the issue of uh, handing down a series of indictments for high-level Venezuelan officials and members of the armed forces and the police forces uh, concerning their le- allegations of uh, involvement in narcotics trafficking and uh, arms sales. So that's been a security concern for the United States as well, which will only grow as Venezuela becomes more and more um, fragile and the possibility of collapse looms even greater. The risk that uh, Venezuela will become, if you will, a sort of failed state within the region grows more and more. There has been a recent upsurge in protests uh, in Venezuela and a lot of other countries in the Latin America region. Why is that? What can be done? And will human rights and democracy be achieved? The first of all is the case of Chile and and Colombia in particular. Uh, What we see there is a rise of demands over over, um, social justice, uh, social inclusion, access to public services, and improvement in public services. The, the, The reason was often labeled as being inequality, but that really doesn't explain it because these have been largely unequal societies for a long time, historically even. So why now? And the question is, is really about rising relative insecurity, uh, rather rising inequality, as well as perceptions about inequality, as well as a, a relative level of, of prosperity that have allowed citizens to be able to make these demands. In Chile, it's demands for better education, better health care, 
um, including also better representation in the political system that had become somewhat ossified. The same thing in Colombia, but also in Colombia, it's the case too, where a peaceful uh, process, where 20 years ago, Colombia was on the brink of a failed state, has allowed these demands to be able to percolate to the top and be, to be expressed in a peaceful way. Um, in the case of Bolivia and Venezuela, there are different reasons they have to do with democratic rights. In the case of Venezuela, uh, we now, as of January 23rd, have the unusual situation, January 23rd, 2019, of the unusual situation of two presidents, uh, Juan Guaido, who is nominated by the National Assembly as a constitutional uh, president, interim president, and been recognized by almost 60 countries worldwide. And then Nicolas Maduro, the man who was elected in 2018 under very controversial uh, and, and probably fraudulent elections. Um, Guaido has tried to bring his supporters to the streets over and over again to demand free and fair elections and demand human rights. And that's been met with repression uh, by the Maduro government. In the case of Bolivia, those protests erupted uh, on two sides. First, it was the allegations of a stolen election by uh, then-President Evo Morales, who was running for a questionable fourth term, uh, and uh, questions that were raised by credible international election observers um, that led eventually to his ouster, arguably in a, in, in a coup by the military. And now you're seeing protests by his supporters against an interim government that has cracked down very violently against his supporters. And most recently, uh, using COVID-19 quarantine measures as an excuse to crack down on Morales' uh, um, uh, supporters and try to round them up and purge, if you will, society and the government uh, from its supporters. So again, questions why corruption, uh, uh, stolen elections, human rights, as well as in the case of Chile and Colombia, a rising level of prosperity and citizens, I think healthy demands for more responsive, more accountable and more effective uh, social programs. There seems to be a polarization happening in the leadership in these in several countries uh, where, as you've mentioned, the disdain for checks and balances and what is happening in, in the leadership side of things amongst uh, different uh, officials uh, across the region. A number I like to cite is according to uh, Vanderbilt University in the United States uh, surveys called uh, Latin American Public Opinion uh, Polls. Um, more than 80% of Latin American citizens uh, believe that half or more of their politicians are corrupt. And the problem is, too, is this, along with this, this lack of trust in the political class has been a collapse of political parties. So we've seen massive amounts of electoral volatility, even in places like Colombia, but also obviously in places like Peru, which has effectively not had a party system since 1990, uh, but in Brazil as well. And, and, and even in cases like Chile, where levels of political support of political parties uh, have been, has been the lowest in, in, in all the hemisphere. Um, and so in these cases, what it means is that raises the risk of the rise of populist candidates who claim to speak on behalf of the popular will uh, and who come from the outside and sort of don't have the sort of training or background or trajectory, even arguably the disposition to be able to uh, support uh, democratic checks and balances and sort of bring the country together. We see this in Brazil with uh, President Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, we see this in, in Mexico with President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And we see this with uh, the rise of other candidates, including in El Salvador, for example, with Naib Bukele, uh, who came to power as an outsider candidate and has really stoked these divisions in a way that, that risks even further polarization and, and 
developing some sort of consensus to lead these countries forward. They've all had different approaches as we've entered the coronavirus crisis globally. Um, but in the region specifically, what, what's coming? Well, COVID-19 has really thrown, I think, a, a sharp light on what were trends that were already evident in the region. Uh, first of all, on the one hand, the, the economies in these regions were already cooling down. Now, because of COVID and because of the shutdown, we're looking at as much as 6% contraction in the case of Mexico um, and stagnating or negative growth throughout the hemisphere. So already, uh, these middle-income countries are sort of risks, at risk of seeing their middle classes fall through the cracks and, and grow even more unequal. Um, the second thing, effect that COVID-19 has had, you know, in the overlay of this populism that I talked about, is we're seeing really divergent responses to COVID-19. The populist governments in Brazil, Nicaragua, and Mexico that I mentioned are really ignoring the warning signs of COVID-19. In, in those cases, the presidents have urged their people to get out the streets. They have not enforced any uh, element of, of uh, at a federal level, uh, self stay at home measures or self containment measures. But also we're seeing at this point, uh, we're seeing in the case of El Salvador is a real risk to, to the checks and balances. Uh, the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, who in mid-March implemented a very strict lockdown and travel bans in the country, now has used COVID-19 as an excuse to enforce his quarantine at gunpoint by the armed forces, rounding up over several hundred uh, political prisoners, and has ignored the warnings of the Supreme Court to uh, roll back uh, those policies and not to enforce and not to uh, engage in human rights abuses. So it's going to be a mixed bag. Uh, I think the larger issue we need to focus on here are the economic effects overlaid over already alarming levels of disaffection and polarization. My last question to you is on um, is one that I like to ask to people who are very familiar with the regions that they're talking about. And it's what can help us understand the region better? What the outside world, those who are not so familiar, is there anything misunderstood about the region that we need to, to understand that's important to know? There was a famous New York Times journalist, Scott Reston, uh, who said about Americans, that Americans will do everything for the region, meaning Latin America, except read about it and understand it. Um, and that implies obviously intervening, uh, peddling bad opinions, uh, and doing all sorts of other things. So the first thing I think is follow it and understand it, and understand it in its diversity. And this is not the fault necessarily only of the outside world. Uh, Latin Americans love to talk about their solidarity, their commonalities. The truth is they're a very diverse region with a lot of tensions uh, that are playing out not just uh, uh, historically, but are playing out now when we see, for example, in the case of Venezuela, 1.5 million Venezuelans have fled the country, the economic and humanitarian disaster, and taken up residence in Colombia. That's out of a total of nearly 5 million Venezuelans that have left. And for the first time, we're seeing really nationalistic, even xenophobic reactions against those Venezuelan refugees in Colombia. So understanding that there are tensions within this hemisphere, also understanding that uh, when people talk about a hemisphere that is governed by elected governments, with the exception of, of, of Cuba, that even within sort of the, the, the broad definition of democracy, there's a lot of variation. Uh, you have really the, sort of the, the authoritarian and even failed states of Venezuela and Haiti, uh, despite the nominal elections that they've had. Um, you have functioning liberal democracies like Chile, uh, Mexico, Argentina, um, and even Peru. But in those cases, too, there are still structural weaknesses that are something to very much keep an eye on. Uh, and then, of course, there's the issue of, of crime and insecurity across the region. And so 
again, it seems peaceful, but there are a whole series of undercurrents that are very, very troubling and are challenging human rights and humanitarian uh, conditions. The internet and the web have revolutionized the way we live. Online commerce, social media, and mobile technology have given us social, economic, and political opportunities few thought possible even 10 years ago. But with those opportunities come challenges. More and more critical infrastructure is being moved online and exposed to malicious activities. The truths we take for granted are being undermined by fake news, elaborate information operations, and online criminal activity is becoming even more sophisticated. The pressure is on for decision makers and thought leaders to act, to create and to share new policy solutions for government, for industry and for society as a whole. My name is Dr. Robert Dewar and I am the course director for the Geneva Centre for Security Policy's flagship course in this field, Meeting the Cybersecurity Challenge. At the GCSP, we've created innovative learning experiences designed to equip you to meet those challenges. Our modules on cyber defence, Cybercrime and information operations blend innovative active learning techniques such as simulations with expert presentations from specialists in government, industry and academia. These experts will share their experiences directly with you to enable you to navigate this complex and fast-moving field. We can help you achieve your goals in cybersecurity by demystifying the complex nature of the digital age. We have a plan to help you and your organisation both identify and understand the unique challenges you face and to help you develop innovative policy solutions. So, come and be a leader in cybersecurity. Experience new and exciting ways to learn and harness the opportunities that today's digital world has to offer by helping to build a safer and more secure digital tomorrow. Earlier, we spoke to Dr. Patrick Sweet, co-director of the Geneva Leadership Alliance. Firstly, what is the Geneva Leadership Alliance? Good question. Um, there, there's three aspects to it. Uh, you can look at it as a, a resource, you can look at it as a living experiment, and you can look at it as a paradox. Um, as a resource, the Geneva uh, Center for Security Policy and the Center for Creative Leadership bring together some 70 years of experience in leading innovatively in their respective spaces. So we're a resource that combined is like no other place in any university. And we're both recognized as being like in the top 10 around the world for what we do. So we're a unique resource for people in Geneva and around the world. And we address some really, really innovative and challenging uh, uh, leadership challenges that are faced by everybody here. As an experiment, we are unique because it's not been done before, and it is an experiment. So we're learning as much as anything else. And one of the key aspects that we're learning about leading is that leading is about learning as well. So we're an experiment. We're bringing together 70 years of experience on both sides, hundreds of years of professional experience of the people inside, and we're experimenting our way forward. GCSP itself started as an organization to reimagine what diplomacy and what leadership looks like in military and defense and it continues that tradition. And CCL does the same thing. We started with innovative ways of looking at how to lead that were outside of the military, outside of corporate, things that were new. And so we brought in things like glass ceiling, multi-rater um, uh, assessments, many kinds of innovations that today are standard. And the Geneva Leadership Alliance tries to bring all this together in what we call kind of a paradoxical way. Uh, we're an experiment and we're a paradox. We bring together tradition and innovation 
as a resource that's unique across the world. And we bring it to people here in Geneva and to organizations that they work with outside of Geneva. Thank you, Patrick. And what does the Geneva Leadership Alliance offer? We offer a, um, ourselves as a trusted advisor. Organizations that are trying to reimagine how to lead in this complex and diverse environment need a strategy. And so how do you create a strategy when everything is emergent, when everything is polarized, when you need to respect tradition and innovation? And so we act as a trusted advisor to identify how you can align an emergent strategy with leadership development activity, a leadership development strategy for the talent that you have inside. And we do that on two levels. We look at individual, the human capital, what do I need to do as a leader? And then the social capital, what do we need to do? What are the practices that we need to share? So what we offer are uh, trusted advisor design kinds of uh, skills to help you figure out how to develop your leadership core in your organization. We also offer open enrollment courses so people can come in and mix with other people from other organizations from around the world. So they're kind of open enrollment courses around core essentials in leading in complex and turbulent and extraordinary times. And we also do kinds of evaluative uh, work. We can help you assess uh, what it is that you need. We can help you take a look at um, where you need to go. Um, before you start the design work. So we do assessment, we do trusted advisory work, and we do uh, uh, custom uh, educational programs as well as open enrollment programs. So why is it that you've created the Geneva Leadership Alliance? It, it's hard to answer the first two questions about what and how without really asking yourself why. And I can almost turn the question around and say, you know, of those 70 years I spoke about, I've been working in leadership and organization development myself for 30 years, and never before have I seen such rapid change, such unpredictability, such polarized tensions, and such tangled information ecosystems. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. It's part of why we're experimenting our way into this. The reason is that we're in this rupt, disruptive environment, and it's going to continue. So we brought these two institutions together to experiment our way forward, to take what we know that works, our research, and also recognize this disruptive environment and help others with us learn how to lead in that context. So the why is really big. I think we need it today more than ever before. And when we looked around, the other leading institutions with whom we compete all the time they tend to be universities like IIMD or Harvard or Stanford or any of the number that you can find. Uh, none of them are bringing these two together. So the why is we need it and we have these two really world-class assets as a resource. And that's why we did it. Patrick, my final question to you is what is your advice to current and future leaders in international peace and security? Recognize that leading is as much about learning as anything else and recognize that as a leader, you need to help in this really extraordinary time, others learn to lead, your institutions, your friends, your workmates, your subordinates, and your bosses. It's about learning. So, so if there's one key aspect that I could say is become self-aware, learn how to learn, and learn how to lead learning. That's all we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Dr. Christopher Sabatini for joining us, along with Dr. Patrick Speet. Listen to us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. Head to our SoundCloud channel, and don't forget to download or subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes. Bye for now.